1980, Ronald Reagan was President of the United States of America. Call Me by Blondie was number one on the billboards. Pac-Man had just come out. War was raging in the Middle East and drugs were overtaking the country. It's almost just like right now. But it's not, because it's 1980. <clears throat> what was I saying? What? Uh, did I mention Return of the Jedi or The Shining or... Uh, oh, mm, what, uh, I, what was the point? Uh, it doesn't matter. Let's just announce it. The best movies of 1980, according to Death by DVD. Uh, I, I, I just can't remember what else I was going to say. Anyhow, and now your hosts. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host. Hey, you fucked my wife? Did you fuck my wife? Hank, did you fuck my wife? I'm your fucking brother. You think I'd fuck your wife? Your mother sucks elephant dicks. By Joe Pesci. Don't overcook a steak. It defeats its own purpose. Your mother sucks elephant dicks really just brought it home for me. That is what made Raging Bull deserve to win uh, Picture of the Year for 1980. But it lost to a movie directed by Robert fucking Redford. He's an actor turned director. It's very impressive when you can do two things, like Kevin Costner. Didn't Richard Gere direct something? I don't think so. I don't think Richard Gere has much talent like, mm. at all. But well, he might anally. Bringing that joke no, back. No, from don't the... even bring that shit up. That's that's small potatoes. Well, you know, it's bullshit. funny. Everybody attributes it to Richard Gere, but I would think it like honestly believable with somebody like Charlie Sheen, like. If you heard that story of, you know, Charlie Sheen was brought to the ER with a gerbil in his ass, nobody would blink an eye and think anything, uh, uh, you know, differently. Because it sounds right. It, you know, it doesn't even sound out of place. This is a class episode. We're being classy, and you're oh. not being classy. I I'm going to talk about hardcore fisting later, so I don't know how well we can dress that up. Did you fuck my wife? Yes. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. That's, that's cool. I'm I don't remember how the scene ends outside of him going over to, to his brother's house and beating the fuck out of him while he's eating eating dinner. And listen to Joe Pesci, like, whine like a little fucking... <laughs> we're, we're talking about um, Raging Bull. But this is my favorite intro I think we've ever done. It just goes into fisting, and did you fuck my wife, and it's just all over the goddamn place. Um, raging, raging bull from 1980, which is funny. You know, we could hold, we could do maybe an entire show about, uh, let's say, the best movies of 1980. I, I mean, maybe we could put together a list quickly. A top five list, perhaps. I, you know, I maybe we could. I don't know. Do you possibly have one laying around? I I made one when we discussed doing this show two weeks ago. Oh. You know how long it took me to make my list and put it in order. Like five minutes. Okay, yeah, mine has been the, the two weeks. Two weeks it took you to put a list together. And it's changed multiple times, and still to this day, there's no. I don't have order for it. All I know is I like, I think one's the best, and that's it. I don't think you understand what a type five episode is about. 
Oh, I do. I just wanted to combine everything together um, as, you know, this is our greatest hits of the year, and then you had another idea, so now I'm just running and gunning with it, and when you pick yours in order, I'm going to immediately have to put mine in some form of order and stick to it. Oof. Stick to it? Yeah, I, sh- I should have done a music number to that. Pinky swear? I'm going to push it. Push it to the limit! Walk along the razor's edge. I want to. I'm gonna, gonna make it. this a musical episode one day. It's gonna. So happen. best movies in 1983. 1983. No, 1980. Uh, top five. I made a list. You made a list. You just want to go. You just want to get into this list. Who goes first? You. You go I first. Care. I go first. It does not matter. What order are we doing this in? Alphabetical, last order, best order. It's you go five to one. I'm just making it difficult. I think you, you like to call it. <laughs> Back in the day, you'd call this sandbagging. Um, so why don't you go first? Let's let's. Back in the day, I still call it sandbagging. I've not been that bad lately. <laughs> I made a list. I mean, it, it. What was really hard is you went first, and I didn't think about it. I didn't. You know, I, I need to start calling dibs on this bullshit. You went first. Well, we just don't tell each other. We don't tell each other until we do the show. How about that? That would be a pretty great episode. I would really like that one. But you went first and gave me your list, and I looked over it in awe and was like, damn, those are some really great movies. And then I went through the other movies made in 1980 and went, this motherfucker. <laughs> okay, I, I see what you did there. And then it became the long debate of, is the fog better than used cars, or is used cars better than the fog? Neither I don't of which... even think the fog makes the list, personally. No, it it's doesn't. good, I enjoy it, but it's not a a top five or a top probably even ten movie is in 1980. It made the very first part of my list when I didn't put forth any effort into this and figured we'd just record a show, and then I got into the idea and wanted to put forth some effort into it, and that's where it changed. I think my exact text was, you gave me a list, and the fog was like number three or four, and I'm like, you're telling me that the fog is better than Raging Bull. I think my response was, no, what does it matter? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so mine wasn't so much hastily put together as I had to scrap through the best of 1980, and some of my list definitely I uh, added mostly because I just wanted to talk about it on the show, and I don't think, um, you know, strategically, if we were trying to do some la-di-da actual fancy list of the greatest movies, much of these are debatable. I mean, a lot that you have picked are what I would say would be on the greatest hits of Death by DVD, some of the best movies ever made, really. And I, I have a few. I mean, I have a very controversial movie. I have se- all, Actually, all of them are pretty controversial. Um, I think between us, we have, what, three or four rated X pictures? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't remember ratings. Uh, I can tell you whatever you're... You have two, at least. I know you have one. Do I? I thought so. I don't know. You know, we'll figure it out. We'll get to it. This is going to be um a long show, so... Buckle up. And spoiler uh, alert, Empire Strikes Back made neither list. So all you Star Wars fans who think we're uh, we're fools didn't even get make the list. It would probably have made my top ten, maybe. It wouldn't have made mine. Friday the 13th didn't make either of these lists. It probably would have made a top ten, though. Maybe. Uh, actually, some of yours would probably made it to my top ten, but not my top five. Yeah, it... Two, I guess, says something about both of our personalities, what movies we picked. But at the same time, we did this on the um, Best of 2019. A lot of your movies I don't disagree with. 
and a lot of them I would have picked if you already hadn't, which we could do the same movies, but we decided to do 10 and make this long. Yes. So, buckle the fuck up. Are you going to steer this car off the cliff into the river? I guess I'll go first. From 1980, my number five, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. All right, so The Shining is a classic horror film. I think it is, and I know I'm going to get some hate for this. I think it's a little overrated. Not entirely Just overrated, a little bit. but I think people, like, they tend to push this one to, like, oh, it's one of the greatest horror films all the time. It's scary as hell. It's like, eh, well, you know, culturally and socially, it's been driven into the fucking dirt at this point. But it's still, if you go to 1980, it would be my number five on... I was cognizant at that age to make a list. It would still probably make my number five. I think it's a tremendous horror film. Stanley Kubrick um, was a visual pioneer. And as we were, me and Hank were discussing earlier this week, um, what makes Kubrick special as a visualist, as a, a, you know, cinematography sake, is kind of much like The Shining culturally been appropriated and it no longer kind of seems as special as it used to, but at least back in the day, you know, like most people weren't paying as much attention to their photography as Stanley Kubrick was because his shit, I mean, the amount of time he spent shooting a movie was insane. The amount of takes he would do, hundreds and hundreds of takes because he wanted a specific like lip quiver. Fanatical. Uh, he's, I mean, he was a, a manacled genius, I mean, basically, but... Well, I brought up Joe D'Amato and his absolute love of, you know, the cinema and just being behind stuff and, and shooting when we did the Video Nasty show. And there's a lot of comparisons that you could draw between a guy like Joe and a guy like Stanley Kubrick, but it's so funny the massive difference, the canyon-sized difference of the two people and the artistry between the two people, because Stanley Kubrick certainly considered himself an artist as to where Joe didn't fucking care. He just wanted to run a gun. Well, and Kubrick always, he made a film. He wasn't always just getting shots. Everything had somewhat equal importance, acting, photography, sound. He was, like, one of the first, like, major auteurs. Because, I mean, Hitchcock was an auteur as well, but the way Kubrick did it, the way he really put forth so much effort into every aspect of his film um, was truly impressive for its time. And this film, I think it does have a creepy tone. Um, I think it has some very disturbing imagery, especially the guy in the bear suit blowing the ghost. That's always freaked me out. The twin thing has culturally been appropriated and it means nothing anymore, but at the time it was very impressive. It was very like frightening. Um, but the one reason that Stephen King hates this movie is the one reason I really enjoy this movie. Because with the hiring of Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, Kubrick put forth this idea that basically Jack Torrance is has never been really that much of a nice guy. He's always been an alcoholic, and therefore there's not much redemption for the character, especially in Stanley, Stanley Kubrick's eyes, in the film. And King wanted the character, as, as he wrote in the novel, which is to be very sympathetic because he it's was an autobiographical. himself. Yeah, I mean, he was doing an autobiographical thing about him, his troubles as an author and an alcoholic. And... I don't think Kubrick was interested. I think he was offended as a father that the you know the director that Kubrick took the notion of 
not having redemption and made it very blatant that that Jack was a dick and it was offensive I think to Steven just as a dude like man whatever I'm not that way and that's fine but still there's a lot of artistry to just be had I mean even if you find The Shining boring which you hear a lot a lot of modern horror fans don't like it but uh, the artistry behind it just the sequence of sh- the scenes and the insanity in which Kubrick shot in that I, I mean it's just kind of it's a pivotal piece of art. You need to see it if you're into cinema in general. And I will always go back and to my old that sounds so fucking fluty. Shining, which is um, basically Kubrick had really no interest in horror. He had no interest in making a horror movie. He has no interest in ghosts. He has no interest in any of this. What he had interested interest in the story was a story of abuse, of a abusive relationship, an abusive marriage. Um, a father who, due to alcoholism, due to his own inner personal demons, is really kind of a shitbag and kind of examining that white suburban um, defective family dynamic that was especially going on in the, like the late 70s and early 80s. And I think he does that wonderfully. I think that's down to uh, his casting. I think Shelley Winters, or Shelley Winters, Shelley Duvall is perfectly cast in this film. Because, I mean, <laughs> just complete. imagining fucking Shelley Winters in The Shining is just so great, though. Isn't, isn't that fucking hysterical? Uh, I don't Would that work quite the same? Only and if she actually, played Jack. That, that brings up a great point, though. Because if you did, say, put someone like Shelley Winters in, it would completely change the tone of the film. Shelley Duvall and the performance she gives, the performance that Kubrick instructed her to give, even being so far as abusive to the actress on set was to get her rattled. I, I mean, we can discuss, you know, things like morals and art and should he have been as abusive to his actors? Oh, we will. Uh, we'll get into a lot of that, too. So, I mean, this can be a roundabout discussion throughout the show because a lot of my picks um, are going to really bring up morals and standards with uh, questions raised by the audience. But he did get results, and Shelley Duvall's performance in this film is picture-perfect for what he was going for. And I personally say that it was so much more about this abusive father. Didn't Jack Nicholson want um, Jessica Lange? Didn't he really like try to get his foot down to get Jessica Lange for the role? Because she's blonde in the book and, and beautiful and boozy, which, you know, that's, that's where you need Jessica Lange. I'm... I don't think it would have worked. No, it would have changed the tone completely, and the movie would have, I mean, I feel would have been more of a average horror picture. And, I mean, you're like apples and oranges because you've got something like a John Carpenter movie with heavy use of Steadicam and then The Shining with heavy use of Steadicam, and you try to compare both of these at the same time of, you know, who did it best at the earliest time period, and it doesn't fucking matter. It's two different pieces of art, and they both look pretty great. So, overall, I think Kubrick did something that was picture-perfect for what the vision he was going for. A lot of people, this film does have detractors, but it also has a lot of supporters. And I personally think it was, it's one of the best horror films of the 80s as far as a quote-unquote good movie and a well-made film. I prefer a lot more horror films from the 80s, and I think they're better movies for me personally. Just because uh, I do, because um, I watched uh, the film Parasite this week, and I was discussing the fact that the one thing that Parasite is missing, it has a little bit of those, but an exploitive element always helps, and it helps to engage an audience. With Jordan Peele's Us, I think he had, because those 
Parasite and us are discussing very similar things. They just went about two different, completely different ways. And the reason I preferred us over Parasite is just those exploitive elements. And I think in The Shining, there are some exploitive elements, but it just doesn't push it to that fucking edge. I think he kind of pusses out on some of the things in it overall, but I mean, he didn't make a classic that's number five on my list for 1980. It's certainly Dang. a classic, and I think a lot of things come down to people's tastes. I have absolutely no problem with Stanley Kubrick, but when you know, I talk about or discuss the masters or maestros or the greatest filmmakers of all time, Kubrick's on my top ten list, but he usually isn't on the top five, and even if I'd have had choice picks of these movies and hadn't let you go first, I, I really doubt I would have even put The Shining on my top five list, which I'm sure is offensive and awing to some, but even something like Friday the 13th, it just doesn't strike a nerve or touch me, and I completely understand the story, and I'm sure formally I'd been able to relate to it, but at this point in my life, it doesn't... It doesn't, like you say, have much shock and awe to me. There's not a lot of things that are disturbing, and I, I don't think the story could have been told any better. I think Stanley Kubrick told the story better than it was in the first place, which, again, is kind of a bastard statement because that's an insulting Stephen King, but whatever. It just doesn't do a lot for me. What does a lot for me is the cinematography and the masterwork behind that, and as you brought up, Kubrick's uh, insanity with 120, 130 shots. And it looks spectacular. That's one thing that can always be said uh, for Stanley Kubrick, that no matter what, it generally looks spectacular. But I'm more in the vein of Strange Love, um, Full Metal Jacket, big Full Metal Jacket fan. Strange Love is probably my favorite. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So when it when you know you're dealing with Stanley Kubrick, I'm on a different spectrum than something like The Shining, which doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. I I have the ridiculous uh, Shining sweater. I I love the culture and that like you brought up, it has become such a piece of culture. Sitting down and rewatching it to me is almost exhausting because I've seen The Shining so many fucking times. I just uh, and there's a lot of other movies that I watch repetitively that I can say the same for, like Aliens. Uh, I love that movie. I used to talk about it constantly, and it was a running joke on this show how often I would mention it. Getting me to sit down and watch it right now? Fuck off. I'm sorry, man. I've seen it so many times. I love it to death. It's great. I'm just I'm done with it. I love it, but I'm done. Would you say, um, I mean, think back to all the Kubrick films, I would say that The Shining is probably his most photographically impressive movie. Well, 2001 A Space Odyssey is a contender. I mean, because that movie is It's up there, but I think it gets a little looser at times. I think The Shining is like almost to a weird, crazy, like OCD level of like symmetry of design of pattern because i mean you do have the pattern of the carpet and things like that but that pattern carries through to everything it carries through to the maze it carries through to the wallpaper it carries through to just the so i think he's just saying a lot with his photography and it's probably for me his most impressive photography not that eyes wide shut is bad or anything but it's just it's a completely different tone and the tone he's set for the shining is quite amazing and probably hasn't been accomplished again since then to to be that like measured um with your photography and to be that over the top with it i wish i knew what manny serrano was doing right now he is a big stanley kubrick fan and has told me the story a thousand fucking times before because i could just dial him into the show but kubrick shot this um in a, in a ridiculous rate because he was annoyed and i'm gonna butcher this goddamn story he was annoyed with 
the rate of how his movies were shown on television, so he figured out a way around it to shoot this, and it's one of the reasons why The Shining has uh, such a distinct look to it. And I know, because uh, I'm talking about rates and ratios, and none of that makes any sense to anybody. One day I'll get Manny to explain the story, and we'll talk about The Shining with, with him, because he knows all the behind-the-scenes stuff. He's a big fan of the, the Room 237 documentary, which... We did years ago on the live Death by DVD, and I raged about how much I disliked it. And I still do. Stand by it. It's really, really fucking long, and it's all about the plight of the Indians and the cornmeal, and I get it. But, man, I just wanted uh, to learn that some... Bullshit. Yeah, I thought I'd learn some, like, cool behind-the-scenes stuff about camera shots or whatever. And now I know all this stuff about cornmeal, and that's just a day in the life of Hank. Well, I think mostly with... What you're saying about the aspect ratio, I think Kubrick was just being somewhat visionary of looking towards the future and understanding that most films if they're going to cut this shit anyhow, so why don't I cut it? It's not going to last. You know, no people aren't going to be going to theaters as much. Video is forever. People are going to be watching this on TV more than they'll ever see it in the theater again. So, might as well start shooting with like pan and scan in mind. Start like stop using the 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 rectangle as much and go go right for the square. But, I mean, little did Kubrick know everything was going to be like a fucking rectangle and flat screen years in the future. But, I mean, still, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's on Kubrick's end. Well, I think visionary is a pretty good term to use uh, when discussing him in general, no matter what your opinion is on the body of his films, because he certainly, as a director, was a fucking master. And I guess that can lead me into my next movie by... Somebody we could questionably say is a man. I mean, I don't know. What What do you number think five. about? Yeah, number five. Uh, what do you think about John Landis? Do you think he's a master of film? John Landis has a lot of talent. I think he knows how comic timing works more than anything. I think he also understands that because comic timing and like horror timing are generally the same thing. You have to know all those things. But I think John Landis kind of stepped outside of his comfort zone a lot. But when he's in his comfort zone, he's amazing. When he's out of his comfort zone, you get the stupids. Well, this was a hard one. I don't think we really talk about comedies that much on Death by DVD, but this is, oh, from 1980. The Blues Brothers by John Landis, written by Dan Aykroyd. Almost made my list. Yeah, that's what made me think about it, that you almost put it on your list, and it was really a mashup between this and used cars. And despite my passionate love of Garrett Graham, it just isn't strong enough. Hysterical movie, though, if you've not seen Used Cars, also from 1980. Check that out. Dan Aykroyd apparently wrote like a 350-page script for the Blues Brothers, and John Landis turned it into what we have, probably the greatest comedy-slash-action movie of all time. I don't think there's a lot of arguing when it comes to that. It's the pinnacle of the career of John Belushi. Some would argue his greatest performance, I think. You know, as a showman, a lot of his greatest performances were probably lost on stage and you know not filmed and i don't think there's a cap for potential with somebody like him who obviously these guys that are burning at both ends really burn out soon and belushi's career spiraled kind of out of this because he truly was a party animal and uh jolie ate jake but the blues brothers was the first time that like the the whole concept of the music video and the music world widespread was brought and kind of transcended onto film outside of you know just a regular musical that they had rhythm and blues rock and roll their own band 
It was an SNL skit that came out of absolutely nowhere. A $17 million fucking dollar budget, which probably mostly was spent on cocaine, which I think was actually part of the budget that you know they had to keep uh, John working constantly. And the outcome is... I have never met anyone that doesn't like it. I've never met anyone that can look me in the eye and go, it's not funny. The Blues Brothers, I think, is a forever cultural thing, somewhat like you brought up with The Shining, that will forever, you know, th- between the car, the Ray-Bans, the, the, the suits, um, uh, I think they broke my watch. I hate Illinois Nazis. Just all the quotes, all the cultural aspects that have melded into comedy as like The Shining has with horror and horror culture and just references, tattoos, just absolute uh, the a top of, you know, like the Stephen King, Stanley Kubrick fandom, I guess, would be The Shining. I think this is from anything SNL related, anything, uh, to use the, the joke, blue comedy related, this is the, the head of it. I think it's the only movie the Vatican has ever actually recommended uh, like for Catholics to watch as a good, wholesome Catholic comedy, which is ridiculous, but hey. If the fucking Pope's telling you to see the Blues Brothers, check it out. Well, I think the Blues Brothers, as far as a script, is a total mess. But that is honestly one of its benefits. It helps tell this kind of insane story. And just the the sheer fact that they really didn't seem like they know where they want to take this whole idea is what makes it interesting. The amount of car chases, the amount of stunts. The amount of they um, put a fucking mall legitimately out of business. Fucking legends like James Brown or Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, and really appreciating something like the blues um, and soul music from the the sixties and fifties and seventies and things like that. The big drawback on a movie like this is a bunch of fat white rich dudes who go on to make shit like the House of Blues and pretend like they really do know what's going on with the blues and its origins and its roots and what these people were actually singing about. I mean, there's a fair amount of cultural appropriation here, but whatever. It's Even beyond movie. cultural appropriation, you could call it a bastardization of the culture. A little bit. Just a little bit. I mean, you, you do need your white actors to bring in all these, um, especially like the, in 1980 to make this movie a hit. Um, but you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of negativity, a little bit of positivity. I think it's a, an amazing comedy. I think that it's the roles a lot of these people were born to play. It's like I don't really like Dan Aykroyd in most things, but he's really good in this movie, just because he's not asked to act whatsoever. John Belushi, of course, is um, one of the most charismatic comedic comedic performers of all time, and the the camera loves him. You're just drawn to him. Especially in that scene, the most telling scene in the film is when he finally takes his glasses off to talk to his, his ex-girlfriend who's trying, been trying to kill him the entire time. That the you just see how Carrie kind Fisher. his eyes are. This like enigmatic figure that's been going on this whole movie that he actually is really a person in there. So it does have a little bit of drama, a little bit of heart to go along with all the madcap ridiculousness that is the Blues Brothers. But it's an amazing film overall. I cannot believe how long it is. Like I saw, I probably watched this on TV more than anything, like on TBS and stuff like that over the years, because it would play two or three times every year on a cable station, and just it's like a three-hour experience watching on TV. It's such a long movie, but it's never particularly like two hours and thirteen minutes to watch. 
I mean, that's one hell of a run, a run time. Two hours and 13 minutes for a comedy, no matter who's behind it. And still, if it was up to Dan Aykroyd, it would have been much longer. Touching upon what you brought up with John Belushi, you know, it, it definitely is a tragedy to how he went out. But as you brought up with Dan Aykroyd's career and uh, Jim Belushi's career and everyone else involved, John Landis and how these guys have all blown up and, and gotten bigger. John Belushi, you know, would have gone one of either two ways uh, with them or against them. And going against them, he probably would have become, you know, one of those comedians you forget about. You know, there's so many people from SNL that you can look back and remember being hysterical, but you don't quite remember. Like Norm MacDonald, what the fuck's he doing? Probably gambling. Gambling, yeah. <laughs> I was going to like say gambling or being a Republican asshole. Is he one? No, it's not him. It's is it is it him or is it um? He's mostly apolitical. Uh, okay, so it's the other guy that read the news. Chevy Chase is a dick, but who am I thinking of? Dennis Miller. Yeah, there we go. He's a dick also. He's become the, uh, the most major of Bill O'Reilly style dicks. Oh, but going back disgusting. to the Blues Brothers, one of the things that is like a very important arrow in the quiver of the director is you get to see what John Landis is really good at. I mean, he's good at comedy, he's good at horror, but one of the things he was best at is shooting stunts. And I know this, like, especially for the time period <laughs> that this movie was made, that sounds horrible. Um, for a while, but... this had the record for the most car crashes of, of any movie ever made. And, I mean, some of them are absolutely ridiculous. There's two scenes I know of that they had a car crash at over 100 miles per hour to where the even audience for those scenes had to be stunt people involved. So there's some ridiculous shit that John Landis is behind the camera for. And that is something that you really, like, you're, you're delving into has to get some big credit. Yeah, and like I can't believe John Landis didn't go on to make more stunt fuel movies. I mean, he's made a few over his career. I mean, the the ending of American Werewolf in London is like that, where it's just this crazy like amount of different stunts, and he's just tremendous at it. I just wish he would have kind of done more of it. But I'm sure like a lot of that has to do with what happened during the Twilight Zone movie, and he just didn't want any part of stunt work anymore. I mean, he he worked as a stuntman in Hollywood for some years before he ever got into directing, actually. I would never want to be around a helicopter again if I had been involved in something like that. And you know, not even trying to be a smartass or joking. It was a fucking horrific, horrific accident. So it obviously had to leave a, a mark on everybody that was involved with it. Especially Vic Morrow. Rest in peace. Quite the major mark. Well, I, think I thought my joke was worse. Rest in peace. Cause he got that would be rest in pieces. Yeah, I was trying to be subtle with it, but whatever. We're both being <laughs> awful, <laughs> and that's that's what makes this show so very very special. We go into number four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I you know, and I I, I don't I, at this point think you know either of us like it's not like a full on debate. It's not a blood sport, but I think both points are pretty valuable on you know whatever you want to think with the Blues Brothers. It's hard to put this in. You know, a, a top ten or even top five list because you gotta, you know, if you're genre specific, if you're genre specific, and there, you know, are are certain things that are appealing to you that you also want to bring up, like my list kind of goes into in a little while here. You don't know where to put a comedy, so you know, you really want to appease everybody with something new, and then you don't want to do a comedy. Well, like Blues Brothers always made my list just because of how much of a classic it truthfully is, and it's never a bad day when the blues brothers is on you can kind of sit it's kind of like a jaws situation where i can sit down and watch jaws anytime it's on television i can sit down and watch blues brothers almost anytime it's on television 
All right. So number four on my list is from a British filmmaker from 1980, and it was probably his last great film, and that is Ken Russell's Altered States. And Altered States is a fucking mess of a movie, a mess of ideas, a mess of special effects, concepts, but Ken Russell is able to honestly kind of harness all this lunacy into one big ball of let's eat some mushrooms and watch Altered States. Um, it's much more than that. It's not just a drug movie, but goddamn is not a great drug movie. Um, so many of the different things. It's discuss, usually like, the most top listed drug movie. I mean, you've got something like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that really took culturally over with people in the 90s. But if you've done psychedelics before, this is always one of those must watch if you're going to get high movies, uh, as well as like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, I mean, because those other movies are about different topics. I mean, you can argue 2001, but the the fact that Alter Sage is such a drug movie and it's about what like um, hallucinogens can do to you, and I don't mean in a negative sense. I mean in like exploring your interior beast in the movie as it is when he literally regresses back to the Stone Age, but it's more about using all these different things like science, like shamanism, like hallucinogenics um to really get at what is a part of man's core connecting yourself to the old earth essentially i mean that's a almost kind of like richard stanley aspect of things is finding the inner point of who you are and uh the, the lead character i always call him bill pullman and it's not bill pullman William Hurt. William Hurt brings up at one point in the movie that this stuff is inside of us, this millions of years of stardust, the galaxy is literally inside of us, so we have to be able to untap it, and, and that's just not fantasy inside of the movie. That is reality that, you know, you're made literally of fucking stardust. Human beings are made out of what the galaxy is made out of, so uh, essentially, in theory, this point is somewhere still inside of you, so... You know, you're exploring a really hippy-dippy kind of idea, and then, of course, you add on the, the psychedelics and all the science that comes forth with what, they're, with, their, with the project they're working on in the film. But at the same time, it's pretty human. I mean, at its core, I think it's very, very human. It's the search for the soul, I mean, to be blunt and honest about what this movie's about. Um, Just like uh, The Devils. And... Really, like, um, Hodorowsky will do tarot readings. Alexander Alexander Hodorowsky, the film director, he does tarot readings. And one of the things he said before that actually struck me is that you are not just your, yourself. You're not this feral human being who's come out into the world. You are every ancestor that you have. It's a little piece of you. You can fight some of that, but genetically you are still back in the fucking 1400s, 1300s, you go all the way back because all those different things that informed your lineage is what makes you today. So you can't just ignore the fact that maybe, I don't know, some relative of yours is some piece of shit slave trader. That's part of you. You need to come like reconcile with that. If um, And even down to, like, okay, this is possibly an unpopular opinion, but introducing religion christianity to um your slaves in the 1800s in america when slavery was this booming part of our economy that you gave them christianity because now you can control them if they fear god then i can make them do anything i want so i mean 
the fact that religion is so important in the black community today is a reverberation of that. So, Altered States wants to break these things down. It's a, it's just about finding out who you are, who who William Hurt's father, William Hurt's father was, what he did to him to turn him into the uh, scientist that he is today. All these a the, very the reptile, to- cold man. Yes, and the, the ways that religion is affected, and the way all these different things has affected him, and the fact that we are still a like caveman deep down inside that's still within us. We are primordial ooze, and we can tap into those. You just have to be like willing and able, and sometimes it helps if you have a little push from some psychedelics. Um, and it's just kind of an it's more of an interesting topic to be discussed because the, the story itself is kind of all over the fucking place. The love story is there, all these different things. And it's just like, eh, none of that's particularly interesting for me personally. What interests me is the, the science behind this, the, uh, the different philosophic ideas that are like discussed in this, not solved in any way, shape or form, but it's just, you know, it's just, Put your little antenna up. Okay, this is something I need to think about. These are things that I need to consider in my everyday life. I think one of the most interesting aspects of the movie is the conceptual idea of reality. And I think every person on Earth has this idea that you know, you, you're know you and you wake up every day and you go through what you do every day and you're the same thing. And each day is a different reality and your perception through each person you meat is a completely different reality and most people you see you don't even know i mean just think about all the people that look at you or even just see you when you go to the grocery store it's a different reality for all of them and and a different level and when you reawaken or start a new day all these things transcend and you know you can get a quantum leap with it and all these things can go into different places or time transcends with space because energy cannot be destroyed but Altered States examines it more on uh, a psychological level of, of just one person and their thoughts and their brain. And when you look at it through that aspect, you can almost take it as a fantasy or science fiction movie and you, you lose a lot of the reality. And that is a little bit of a mistake for me. Not so much a mistake, but a little bit of an error from, for me. I don't – a mistake and error are the same thing, so that – whatever. You get what <laughs> – yeah, you, you get what I mean, but it, it, it's a little more displeasing. A bit of a faux pas. It, it yeah. kind of is It's throwing a bit of a wall up into what you, he's really trying to talk about in the film, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, you've made it a bit more of a fantasy aspect where um, those aspects of reality or uh, questioning what truly reality is, I thought, could have been uh, a bit more provoked or especially from somebody like Ken Russell. I mean, because you have something like, you know, the devils. But again, you can see he knows at this point in his career – I can't have people fucking themselves with bones and raising all these questions that are really going to upset people because they're not going to let me do it. They're going to they're going to cut it. and They're not going to let me do it. So he is somewhat tame in this aspect and delving into a fantasy aspect with a, the, the fourth wall and whatnot, I guess, allows the rating systems to not be so harsh. Well, also, I mean, as far as Russell's career, he had always had a very visually stunning career but i'd say this is probably one of his most stunning films visually and it's because of gimmick like gimmicks basically and a lot of hallucination scenes um a lot of trick camera work a lot of special effects that he couldn't have in the you know the 60s and the 70s but at the same time it's all very startling i mean the kind of stuff he was doing in tommy 
to the point where he gets in alter states and the way he just uses all these hallucination sequences really puts you in a mindset of um, be, an open mindset, a psychedelic mindset, a hallucinogenic mindset. And well, that's why it's kind of midsummer. important to occasionally maybe eat some mushrooms and watch something like Alternate States and really kind of start thinking about these things. Well, something to bring up with psychedelics is how you do them, that you can view it as getting high and having a fun time, or you can meditate and take a trip. We might sound like weird leftist fucking hippies at this aspect, but hey, take some psychedelics once or twice in your life. I don't know. Get a guy. Boss. I will always suggest that. Have somebody who's eaten psychedelics before. Yeah, don't just randomly do them behind trip. a gas it's station. It's really important. There are rules. Um, there are rules to going to space. So are we gonna move on to our next one? I guess, unless you've got anything else to say about all of your states. I, I, it's not that I have anything against it too. Like with The Shining, this probably would have made my top ten list. I don't know if it would have made my top five list. I'm a big fan of of Ken Russell in general. I definitely think The Devils is probably my my favorite from him. His earlier work touches me a little bit differently. And uh, you and I had been discussing this, I think, before the show. This is a, the beginning of the end for Ken Russell. And oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoy it. I just think there's a personal aspect that I don't connect to. And I think a lot of it is the way the story is told through um, the lead character and the, the lack of emotion that he has. So when you're trying to identify with his plight, a lot of the time it gets, you know, he's a dick. So you get that emotionally brought in the way of your journey with what you're trying to intake and you get you know like you said ah, who cares about the love aspect it gets in the way a little bit and you get bored and it's not so much that it's a boring movie because it's visually striking and it's you know it looks fucking fantastic somewhat like the shining uh with my experience i just get i get the point very early on and when you stop expressing it and you just give me this uh very placid nobody character that just doesn't care he, he's so fixated on the one thing i lose a little bit of hope in um in the movie if that makes sense that's dark a little bit of hope i'm, I'm a dark guy <laughs> not literally i mean i'm i'm very white but uh mentally all right let's go into your number four. Oh man okay so this is where i gotta thank you gotta thank <laughs> yeah, I don't know the lyrics, sorry. Right? Freedom! Freedom! I don't know the rest of the lyrics. Alright, I don't think I have many more directions to go, so we're gonna go, um... I, I added this really, uh, I guess as a personal thing, not so much that it's one of, um, the best movies. I think the director is one of the most talented people to ever be behind a camera, somebody that could work with absolutely nothing and and make a product out of it and uh, could go over you know literally hurdles if something came up to correct whatever the error was and in the long run might have not had a lot of money behind his projects but ended up making uh, some of the most beloved genre specific things uh Lucio Fulci I'm talking about City of the Living Dead from 1980 and this was written by Lucio Fulci and Dardano Shishetti and I, I I don't know if this was the first in their partnership, but Fulci and Shishetti career-wise ended up writing some of the most prolific films of his career, like The Beyond and Zombie, and eventually broke up after um, the film they shot in Mexico, the uh, sword and sorcery film, which I forgot the name Conquest. of. Conquest. Conquest. 
And, like, this, to me, is one of the pinnacles of Lucio Fulci. It's got one of the most baffling David Lynch-like endings, to use a term I hate, Lynchian, which there's a, a somewhat reasonable explanation for. It's just graphically always remembered for a certain few scenes, but when it comes to the masterwork of what Lucio Fulci did and being able to work with nothing and coming up with something, I just can never get tired of watching City of the Living Dead. And to me, it's one of the most noticeable of the Italian genre films. And I mean, it's something that we we truly love, something that this show was kind of founded on. And I don't, it's not that it doesn't get enough attention. I think the genre gets more attention now than it ever does. But I don't think it gets enough praise behind the camera. I think people really are into the gore, and they're really into the celebration of, uh, you know, video nasties, band movies, um, counterculture, and a lot of the genius behind the scenes is left out. And Lucio Fulci definitely deserves to be given credit as a, as a master of film, a master of cinema. And he worked his way from the bottom to the top, and he, he didn't do massive big-picture movies. And, you know, we've discussed uh, a couple episodes ago he never even knew what a success he was in the United States, which was a shame, but in his own right, not even so much like on a Romero level that there's a specific thing. He cut this way. He he was a master at this. The way he held a production together and worked with his crew and worked with people and just was able to form something. The man worked on a genius level that really isn't seen anymore. I mean, he was a fucking gun, and you could hire him and he could do whatever, but when he was given time and space to work, he would come up with something that is just absolutely, I mean, he was an absurd genius. He was a crazy genius. So you got to keep that in mind with, with his productions. And something like City of the Living Dead truly exposes a crazy genius because this movie is disgusting on so many different levels. Uh, it's, it's somewhat nonsensical. I mean, a priest hangs himself. Somewhat? And it opens the gates to hell. And then something, something, something maggots. And it's crazy. <laughs> You know, the ending is, is pretty much bullshit. I guess somebody spilled coffee or it got lost in a fire. There's a lot of different stories, and nobody has ever gotten to the bottom of it. And Fulci's dearly departed, so we can't really ask him anymore. So it ends on this even more absurd level, and as a whole, I think it's just something to be absolutely cherished. I mean, you've got, I think it's not his last performance, but one of the final performances from Christopher George, uh, one of the first three performances with Catriona McCall. Uh, she later went on to do Zombie and House by the Cemetery. Uh, he, uh no, she wasn't in Zombie. She was in um the Beyond. The Beyond, yeah, stupid. And me. House I'm by sorry. the Cemetery. Um, uh, Tissa Farrow was mm-hmm. Zombie, and we did her on Anthropophagus last week's. Yeah. My bad, I'm wet-brained. But and, and of course, you've got the, the wonderful, amazing Giovanni Lombardo Radice as the character Bob, which I think that was supposed to be M- uh, Mikel Suave at first. He's in the fucking movie. One of the coolest scenes has the wonderful Mikel Suave in the movie, way before he was an anybody. Um, I got up, Chuck. Yeah, I, that, and that scene, even knowing how it was made, was even worse, because they actually just fed the chick a bunch of tripe and then made her fucking puke it up. So enjoy that. She's just puking up raw cheap stomach i think that's what tripe is but all in all i think um um city of the living dead holds up as just a a pinnacle of the classic italian genre film it's got zombies it's got over the top it's got psychics of course it does it's an italian horror film so it has to have psychics random violence you've got angry american characters everybody smokes cigarettes 
uh, an insane soundtrack by Fabio Frizi, which is a pinnacle. I keep using that's the word of the night, pinnacle. A large point of the success of Lucio Fulci's career was his Fabio Frizi soundtracks. It's just a classic. I don't think there's, I mean, there's plenty of ways to pick it apart, but I don't think there's anything bad I can say about City of the Living Dead. Well, like, <clears throat> I watched this not too long ago, and I watched it on the projector, and first of all, Ooh. oh yes, it's very fancy, but as Fulci as a horror filmmaker, one of his strongest things is the fact that he doesn't give a fuck about reality and the fact that he doesn't care about reality and realism in any of his horror films is such a bonus because it adds this very strange tone it's all very dreamlike it's all very much like there's always fog there's always smoke there's always a lot of nonsensical things coming together and it's all really what makes it wonderful and I, a lot of people don't talk about Fulci as uh, as a filmmaker with his photography, um, specifically with City of the Living Dead. The amount of close-ups that like he uses, and the amount of in-your-face that this movie is, the amount of like things that he's just pushing into your face—literally a handful of maggots. Literally, just everything is. He uses so many close-ups to really like hit you over the head with these kind of disgusting images or frightening images. And I think that's really one of his strong suits as well is just knowing how to photograph these things. Um, what's kind of interesting is there was a movie in 1987, 88 called the curse, which is based on HP Lovecraft's color out of space. So that, that's a whole different conversation, but the actor Keith David, no David Keith, I got it right. Yes, David Keith is um, who directed it. David Keith from An Officer and Gentleman and numerous other films, Firestarter. He directed that film, but it was an Italian co-production, and Fulci was a second unit director. And I didn't know any of this when I was watching it. And I said associate producer Lucio Fulci. I watched it maybe like five or six years ago, again, and um, I saw that. And then I saw all the horror scenes in this film, and they all looked like, that looks like a Fulci movie. That looks like a Fulci movie. Because apparently Fulci was the second unit director. He got all the uh, the B shots in, in, this, in The Curse. And he really does have a visual style. I never thought he did before. But go and look at some of his second unit work. It all looks like his movies as well. Um, and I think Fulci is just never lauded upon like someone like Argento or Mario Bava as having a distinct visual style. It's just, oh, well, he, he was the gore guy. Go and watch Conquest. Yeah, it has plenty of gore in it, but the way he uses um, fog, the way he uses um, the lens to push in on his actor's face, he really lends itself to this like immediacy in the image and it really kind of grabs upon you and makes everything seem way more dramatic than it actually is because again most of these movies are so messy and the plots are so inconsequential to anything going on it's just a bunch of shits happening but it all feels right and it all feels good that's the best way i can explain fulci as a filmmaker is just it he does makes it me feels feel good. good with his films 
I mentioned this on the video nasty show, but um, you know, even going back before something like the Psychic to some of Fulci's westerns and a lot of his other studio feels, uh, I mentioned that his pacing got kind of slower, and I feel his work got kind of sloppier as he went into horror, and it truthfully did because he didn't care as much. But his previous work, definitely what you were just discussing, his style is very, very prevalent there, and you can see that he really had an eye. And even if you don't like something like Westerns, you can at least appreciate Lucio Fulci as a, a great cinematographer. And he was an all-around guy. You know, he knew how to do everything. And, uh, you know, again, bringing up Joe D'Amato. He, um, I really got to give thanks to Joe D'Amato because I, we watched, I, we did Anthropophagus uh, and Absurd. And I watched those two and it kind of kick-started me on, I don't know a lot about this guy, so I'm going to watch a lot more of his films. And it's re-sparked my love of the Italian genre Porn? film in general. A lot of porn and a lot of <laughs> just very lewd, ridiculous things, but even something like a tour has a little bit of interesting value that I've, I've been able to, uh, you know, reignite my love of Italian films. And, you know, there's so many different levels of things that you can go into that Joe D'Amato porn level and have a certain appreciation knowing that this guy went into it just doing his darn disc, or you can watch something like a Fulci film and see you know this guy knew how to do everything and he did he did as much as he could on set and again like joe diamato he gave birth to a lot of early careers for people um certainly michael suave learned quite a bit about what he does now and what he made some of his masterworks like um della morte della more with from lucio fulci so he's just beneficial in general to film but people look at him as just the genre specific guy they just look at him for the beyond they look at him for pictures like city of the living dead and they don't allow themselves to examine a masterwork that lies underneath that and uh, you know from writing to soundtracks fulci had his part in absolutely everything in his movies and he was a disagreeable guy certainly and and perhaps a bit of a misogynist but still People will sit and watch uh, Woody Allen movies and have no problems with it. People have, you know, no problems watching Rosemary's Baby. So Fulci didn't like women that much. All right. <laughs> well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The most beneficial thing to Italian cinema, especially of that era, the, like the 60s, 70s, 80s, Italians m made movies with soul and with heart and they put their emotions into it and they weren't so like concerned with the, the numbers of like plot and story. American film is very much about, you know, hitting certain plot points at certain time periods. It's this like giant math equation when you get into most American cinema, but in Italian, especially Italian horror cinema, it's just, no, this feels scary. This well, feels even look at dramatic. the ending of city of the living dead. I mean, no matter what the story is or the footage was lost, it doesn't matter. You've just got the kid running toward Katriana McCall, and then she starts screaming. It makes absolutely no sense. If somebody like David Lynch had put it in a movie, it would be fine. But again, somebody like Fulci did it, and it was fine. You don't question the ending didn't make sense because your lead character just got his fucking head ripped off. Everyone else is dead except, like, two people, and nothing has made sense the entire time. And now the zombies are gone because somebody got stabbed in the gut. I don't care about the ending. The The whole journey to get to that ending is what made it so wonderful. And, and like you, you mentioned, it just feels good. Watching Fulci feels good. And at, at its level, I will say any day of the week, I like Fulci over Argento. I like Fulci over Diamato. 
I, I, I like Fulci over pretty much any Italian horror director that you could throw at me. He, he, there's just a warming, loving, fucking wonderful feeling when I get to the end of even a movie like Zombie, which is a pretty hopeless movie, and you know ends with the world pretty much being infected by the zombie virus still. I'm like, what a hell of a ride. That was great. I want to do it again. And I don't say this much at all because I'm the kind of person that I have Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Blu-ray it's HD, it's clean, and it kind of ruins the movie. With Fulci, though, the the optimization, the Blu-ray optimization, has really made his movies look more beautiful than they ever have. Taking all that grindhouse sleaze and, you know, all the, the layers of fucking smut that are on grindhouse prints and showing for what it truthfully is this work of art that he made, is it's kind of a revelation to have all Fulci stuff in HD at this point because you, it shows what an amazing filmmaker he is. Well, this and takes it, us, again, back to the Video Nasty show. I brought up some of these remasters really are a pain in the ass, and um, we'll just name drop them all the time. Manny Serrano brought up to me, you know, it's kind of funny that you guys love the movies, but when you watch the remasters, they're a little annoying because they're so clear because you can see how bad these movies are. And that's very specific to somebody like Joe D'Amato. When they're really, really clean, yeah, man, you can see. He didn't know a, a lot of what he was doing, and it's pretty messy. When you clean up these Fulci movies and you get to see the precision behind his editing and you get to see a lot of his style that was lost under all that grindhouse grit, uh, a, a bigger impression is made upon you. There's a, a even more satisfactory feeling. But at the same time, I can sit down and enjoy a 10th generation shitty copy of Zombie just as well as, as you know, a new great edition. And and honestly, my Fulci collection is pretty lacking, I think. The best I have is the Blu-ray for The Beyond um, by Grindhouse, and I've got the Fulci collection from Blue Underground and a very, very old Blue Underground Zombie DVD. But it's, it's, again, you know, we've discussed a lot tonight, movies that we've seen many, many, many times and sometimes you get burned out on. For many years, I just haven't gone back and enjoyed a lot of these classics, and I, I definitely got burned out on them. And now I'm, you know, re-sparking that love and falling back in love with Italian genre films. So, like I mentioned with the Video Nasty thing, I'm buying them two by two. It's just a matter of time before I have remasters and beautiful copies of absolutely everything filling my shelves because I don't know what else do I have to do with my time. What's funny is, like, as I was saying earlier about American versus Italian cinema, like, In Night Shyamalan is the antithesis of Italian horror cinema because M. Night Shyamalan's all about that, ooh, that moment where it's like, oh, this is what's been going on the whole time. You ain't getting any of that shit in Italian films. Like Hank was saying before, it's that ride. It's the, the entire ride getting to the end, and in, it's the trip. It has nothing to do with the actual destination, and with M. Night Shyamalan and people like that, and these, like, you know, you have to have some sort of twist at the end. It's like, it's all about the destination, and Fulci really gets you to appreciate that trip, and that's important in filmmaking as well. I mean, sometimes that big twist isn't a bad thing. Sometimes not always. Get... I'm not like downing all those things. It's just you've got to use it appropriately. You know, just like gore, and we discussed this on the video nasty show also. But sometimes there's an appropriate place for gore, and and the movie I'm going to get into next, I'm going to compare it to another movie that I don't feel has an appropriate place for gore, and that can go with anything though. There's an appropriate place for love, and like with altered states. 
I, I understand that he has a, a whole character and that he's a family man or was trying to be one or has a life, but the story you're trying to present to me compared to him being a family man, one I care about, one I don't. So his marriage is dissolving and he's not around his kids enough. I don't care. Keep doing the drugs and become the monkey guy. That's what I want. <laughs> That's the story that you're, you got me into, so keep giving me the monkey story. Well, that was, again, that was my debate on Parasite. I really enjoyed Parasite. It actually knocked Lighthouse off my list. It's number four for 2019. Now I have to go see it because you said that. and It's so much about class consciousness, and it's it's very much like us. They're discussing essentially the same fucking things in both films. Um, and it's really well done. It's a little alienating to me because it is Korean. And, like, culturally, I don't understand all their cultures, so it's, some things feel a little, like, odd to me. But overall, what works for me in a film is I need that exploitive element. And with something like Us, and you hit that horror element very hard, and in Parasite, they're going for this drama element much more than they are going for something like a horror element. So for me personally, as a film watcher, I do like, like what you were saying with Altered States, that exploitive turn. And they could have probably, like Ken Russell, could have focused a little bit more on all the insanity surrounding this and not concentrate so much on his relationship. Or, But, I mean, that's a, it's a little important to me as, as a character. But at this point of what we're discussing in this film, do we even really need a like available to us character or do we just want to go on this ride do we really need to empathize empathize with this character at all or can we just go on this fucking crazy ride with him not knowing anything about him i i see your point yeah, that's what i'm left with is is just the lack of being able to, to connect with him as a person and that's something that uh, me as the viewer i i want i just want to be able to connect with it's that exploitive element on. dude it really does help it really helps like send me through a lot of films is getting that whether it be an action film a horror film a comedy just something you can somewhat explore even down to um like um erotic films of the the 80s like if you had an okay plot twist going on i could watch your shannon tweed movie most of the time they're all the same plot twist though and a lot of people use the term exploitive wrong that they think it's got to be gore or nudity and a lot of it can be exploitive of subculture or exploitive of people or the character or their beliefs or things within and looking at ken russell's earlier work i think he was far more successful with exploiting the ideas of people as to where in this movie it's very lacking and he's attempting to perhaps exploit your mind and make you you know think of something you know like terrence mckenna go outside of your own safety zone and go to space but still it just falls a little bit short I mean, going wow. back into we've into totally that. backtracked. <laughs> We're back on my number four. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> ap apologetic. Sorry, we went back into that. But again, it's still you Whatever. know one big overall thing with with this show, and and one of the more fun aspects is that you you've got this list of ten movies, as we always give you a, a big list and an explanation as to why we did it. But at this point, if you've not seen them, and you can go back and listen to the show afterward, and then form your own opinion on what we've said, I think that's kind of the more fun part about this that it's not not necessarily competitive because back and forth i think all of our movies have a nice place with with all of them that our lists somehow have become compatible and and it flows it's not an awful list you've got a lot of exploitation and bizarre things and then you've got a lot of major motion studio pictures and art films so it's kind of all balances of taste on this list so we're we going into my number three? Oh yeah 
Number three on my 1980 list is the film that pretty much started this filmmaker off as being a quote-unquote genius. It's Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. And Martin Scorsese had made plenty of films before Raging Bull that were they're excellent movies, like completely excellent movies. But you Raging calling me Bull a mook? The, <laughs> but Raging Bull is the one that made him kind of the quintessential director that really showed his skills as a director of actors, a director of a connoisseur camera, of art, of lighting. I mean, he made a fucking art film that was a movie about boxing. And he made a complete art film out of it. And I don't know. I wouldn't what, say it's a movie about boxing. I mean, there's well, definitely boxing in it, but it's it's more of a like a, a melodrama about the the personalities involved in New York in boxing in well, it's two tough movies guy Italian culture. Well, you you pick two movies that are based on um sort of biographies or at least historic texts on people that were there or witnesses of it, and out of the two. This one is based on source material by Jake LaMotta, the guy the movie's about. And what I thought was you know, the greatest turn about all of it is people talk about how Raging Bull's the greatest sports movie of all time. And yes, there are incredibly intense scenes of uh, athleticism and boxing throughout the movie, but what's more provocative boxing's is... Boxing's almost incidental in the movie. It doesn't even have to be about boxing. It just happens to be about boxing. It's the display from Jake's standpoint of his absolute vulgar nature and, and, and just violent tenacity with life, and all of this comes from the first-hand account of Jake himself and the um, tumultuous relationship he had with his second wife and uh, almost astoundingly uh, bringing call to his own abuse and something in this, this culture we have now, um, you know, the cancel culture or whatever you want to call it, bringing attention to people's past behavior it's very unheard of that somebody does it themselves, that this, this man pretty much stood forward and wrote a book of how much of a piece of shit he was and how incidental his boxing career was to all of that, which brings up the masterwork of Martin Scorsese to be able to take and capture something and, and, and show it with the amount of integrity that he did. And keeping Jake involved, I mean, this man was there on, on set every single day, so it's not like... They made an ass out of him and showed what a piece of shit he was. He approved of this. This was who he was, what he was, and a graphic display, uh, which thereof, of him, Jake. And the way Martin Scorsese made this film is really what makes it special because I don't find the story to be like just it's such, such an amazing story. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's a dramatic story, but the way Martin Scorsese films is what makes it so special. It's Along the same lines of um, something like Citizen Kane, where Citizen Kane, the reason it's such an important film is because a lot of the techniques we use, a lot of the way people film films and use audio and different things like that was the first time it was ever really seen was in Citizen Kane. Owen Wilson was a great director. Bringing back the oldies but goodies. Wow. But, um, and Raging Bull is Citizen Kane. I like it better than Citizen Kane, personally. Um, in that way of being able to use the device of film to intelligently and with integrity tell this story about what as Hank surmises basically is a piece of shit and just being able to make it this film. It's funny film... that I like it in this instance, but when you apply it to the exact same thing, like in altered states, I don't like it because both of these movies are incredibly comparable with 
their uh, display of the two lead characters. But in this essence, all, all the punches have been pulled. It's incidental that he's a boxer, and it's not incidental that he's a scientist. The whole point of Altered States is him being a scientist. So these two things have a, like, a thin blue line of masterwork where you have to look at what transcends the other and what becomes more important than the other, and not saying that Ken Russell or Martin Scorsese are better than one or the other, but Martin Scorsese in this uh, instance has clearly made a, a better decision as to what you, you need to intake, what you need to see uh, as the audience to understand what's happening. And that's what's really special about Martin Scorsese's direction in this film is because he was able to take something like boxing and the brutality of boxing and make it look beautiful the way he shoots it. And it's really taking film and using it to tell story. You can sit there and tell a plot and tell every like aspect of a story, but Martin Scorsese is definitely showing the story in this sense in Raging Bull. He's letting you experience the story through film as an art form. It's not just the written word. It's literally every department working at, like on, on all cylinders, working very high end, and to be able to tell this very impactful, very emotional story that otherwise, I mean, look at filmmaking like this. I mean, people, even documentary filmmaking today, you use music to affect what you want. Look at political ads. All of the way that make political ads are like aped off stuff like Raging Bull. And Martin Scorsese knows how to use these different aspects in film to really inter like put the emotion in you, put it right in front of your face and let you experience it. And being able to use all the different aspects of filmmaking to tell just a very brilliant story, which I personally think otherwise is not that interesting the story, but the way Robert De Niro plays it, the way Scorsese films it, the way the, um, the black and white photography is, it all adds to this great mosaic of just beautiful art on every level. And that's really what makes Raging Bull special as far as Martin Scorsese's career is, this, <clears throat> is really what made him feel more like an artistic director and really push himself further into filmmaking. I mean, lately he's not been great, but I mean... Back in the day, when he was really expanding himself as an artist, there was, like, no one better than Martin Scorsese. Each film, like, throughout the 80s, just kept getting better and better and better for him, to a certain extent. I mean, some people would disagree with things like King of Comedy, which is an excellent film in itself. It's just, it doesn't sometimes feel up to the same level as something like Raging Bull, but, eh, I mean, different stories require different aspects of filmmaking. But, and... He was able to actually appropriate the era as well, the era that this is taking place. You couldn't really shoot this film in color at all. It has to be black and white because this is a black and white story of the 50s of these people and how you um, kind of interpret these people even to uh, today. People like it's hard to imagine someone you've seen in black and white in pictures and in films, what they actually looked like in color and reality. And really, were they ever color in reality, or is this reality, this well, black and white reality? I mean, that's what reality, that reality was. It kind of is at a certain point. Yeah, that's absolutely what it was. It was its own reality for, for that time period. And, and when you try and transcend and bring it forward, colorizing it like Ted Turner did with things like Night of the Living Dead, it breaks it. It, it completely makes a, a different beast of what the, the project was. Yeah, and Scorsese went on to make some great films – 
and he has gone on to make shit like Hugo. And I'm not, I mean, Hank will disagree with me with this completely. I am not the biggest fan of The Departed. I love The Departed. It's a great movie. Like, Infernal Affairs is one thing. But I, I think just, that's its own beast. I mean, well, it's, it's completely different film. But my point being, like Martin Scorsese is doing a remake here, and with Cape Fear, he was able to do a remake and actually expound upon what that original film was. And with The Departed, it just seems kind of like a lazy fucking endeavor for him. Although I do love Mark Wahlberg in that film. I think it was his uh, diving into a different culture and attempting to make another classic mafia movie without making a classic mafia movie. So the attitude absolutely changes. And then if you don't have an interest really in the the inner workings of people fucking each other over for a percentage, it kind of falls short because you want to go into it with this Casino Goodfellas idea. And it's it's much more of like a, a Freud versus Carl Jung thing than anything else. But going back to... Going back to Raging Bull, I think it's a sophisticated and artistic articulation of a baby throwing a temper tantrum, and that's one of the most beautiful things about it, that the entire movie is yelling and screaming and violence, and it's interpreted uh, almost artistically, despite it being you know, a lot of violence against women. Uh, the boxing itself is always shown incredibly... Probably the most graphic that Scorsese has shown. I mean, there's there's just massive flows of blood spurting out of De Niro's head at one of the last Joe Lewis fights. And it's and so fucking beautiful at the same time, the way he shoot, like photographs it. Well, uh, just bringing it up, we'll, we'll go into my movie but still stick with Raging Bull because my next pick is Cannibal Holocaust, a movie that is riddled with absolute scenes of grotesque violence. But at the same time, I think it has a significance that is somewhat similar to something like Raging Bull because – there is violence for the sake of violence, and then there is violence shown to evoke an emotion inside of you or help uh, further the story. And, you know, like bringing up something like The Marathon Man, not a specifically violent movie, but the end of the film has uh, probably the goriest scene Olivier had in his career when he falls down the stairs and stabs himself with his own kick-ass weird little arm knife thing, and he rips it out. That's so shocking because it's really the first time you've seen bright red blood throughout the entire movie. Before that, you've got Dustin Hoffman in the shootout scene, and everyone is, is killed violently with guns, but it's not so graphically displayed as it is when Olivier dies at the end of the movie because there was a place in time for that violence, and it is the grand finish to the opera that is the, the Marathon Man. Weird segue to compare especially <laughs> to something like uh, Cannibal Holocaust, but... I, I don't know. I So many people to this day have their statement and their thing to say about Cannibal Holocaust, and I completely understand where people come from with the animal abuse. I, I do, and I sympathize, and it's grotesque. But truly, the message and the story that is offered behind that within Cannibal Holocaust surely must, must have some importance. It, it has to be weighed on your conscience that, yes, this is a graphic, horrible way to display this, but Cannibal Holocaust arguably has one of the greatest anti-American but also anti-cruelty messages that a movie could carry. Anti-humanity at a certain point as well. And it's, it's not in a negative aspect. It's fully admitting that there has been nothing more destructive to the human race than the human race, to the earth than the human race. There's been nothing more destructive to this planet than humans. And the, the way Ruggiero Diodato—sorry, this is from 1980, Cannibal Holocaust— 
uh, Regero Diodato decided to display this, of course, was in the most extreme fashion that he could, and his theatrics behind so I think helped catapult this movie into uh, the canon it is in history right now by of course hiding his actors paying them off to appear to actually be dead you've got the infamous uh, girl on the bicycle seat scene where she's completely staked through after being viciously raped just so many abhorrent images uh, multiple animal deaths what do we got a monkey a muskrat a tarantula a turtle a pig I think that's it right yeah, and like for the most part, this is in no way a defense of like what they did for art. But again, art is not always safe. But most of the animals they killed would have probably been eaten anyway. It's for where they were at. I mean, they they ate them. They did eat them after they killed them. I mean, they didn't just kill them and just ah fuck it. It was it's in the film. It's there for life. That they did eat the turtle. They did eat the pig. I mean. I mean, it's abhorrent the way that they chose to display and do these things, and it's not like there's a right or a wrong way to do things, and I'm not going to bring up a vegan debate of harming animals or, or whatever. I, I'll simply say it was wrong. Harming these animals and killing them, yes, it was wrong, but that doesn't change Cannibal Holocaust, nor does it change the impact that it should have upon your mind. And, and when you take something, again, for a skin-deep value, like we discussed with Lucio Fulci, He's a gore director. You end up closing your eyes and putting on blinders to some art uh, behind things that, you know, even bringing up Ruggiero Diodato, the director of this picture, the man is an astounding photographer and an astounding artist on his own right. And outside of his exploitation and horror work, things like this do need to be appreciated. I mean, you can't argue on one asset that you hate this, this and this if you don't know the body of work or you haven't even bothered to learn uh, how to articulate yourself on the why you dislike something and uh, abhorrent things aside it's not like last tango in paradise where it's come to be found out that marlon brando pretty paris, much paris last tango in paris well last tango in paradise sounds really cool though doesn't it <laughs> that's a completely different film yeah I, it my brain um but still uh, the Marlon Brando has a sex scene, and we've come to find out later in life that it wasn't so much a, a cordial thing between these actors. It's called rape. Marlon Brando raped the actress, and nobody called cut. They let it go. And you can choose to watch something like that, or even like I brought up with Woody Allen earlier, or something like Rosemary's Baby. You can sit and choose to watch those things, knowing what the director did as a person, and say, well, I can look between that and look at the artist and not what they did. But something like Cannibal Holocaust gets thrown on the table, and it's, no, 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 no. I can't do this because they fucking killed a turtle. Uh, it is vicious, and there is no apologies. But, again, art is not safe, and there is no apologies, and there's no fucking crying in baseball. I'm sorry. That's just, you can get over it, or you can completely miss something that has, and to this day has, a powerhouse of a message. And I think... Uh, out of all the movies that we have picked tonight, probably one of the strong, probably the strongest message, and it, it it's not com considerably a hopeful message, but unfortunately, not everything is hopeful. And like altered states, you have to examine these things and delve within yourself and look at these questions. I always thought the ending of the movie. I hate just the way it's said. Who's the real cannibals? I get what you mean. The way you say it's dumb, but that truly is the question at hand. Who is the real? cannibals who's the real fucking asshole here well cannibal holocaust probably wouldn't make my top 10 of 1980 
Um, I agree that it's an incredibly impactful film. I think it's an important film. I think um, it's set off a chain reaction of art, a genre in Italy, um, a lot of different things. Ultra-violence. But as far as just, like, as a film in itself, and if I'm having to be hypercritical about it, um, I think it has a a good message at times. Uh, I think it's a little clumsy delivering that message, especially at the ending. But Cannibal Holocaust is not something that, like, it's kind of not really a good movie. It's okay in a lot of ways. A lot of the acting is bad. A lot of um, I mean, it's like Blair Witch, though. That's kind of the the intention behind. It's not like Blair Witch. Blair Witch is that's like why kind I said like, I agree but... with the impact. I agree with how you handled the film. But as well, far I mean, as I'm something just like, that I can go back to, well, on a level again, of something like Cannibal Holocaust or Cannibal Ferox, I look at the message behind one, and then I look at the absolute love and fandom behind another, and it really makes me wonder what people don't get. And, you know, Ferox is generally much more celebrated because of its gore, but I find it almost pointless and hopeless. And, you know, even Giovanni Lombardo Radice has a great deal of disdain for the movie because of, of those specific points, that there's a time and a place for violence, but, like, Ferox was just one-upping Holocaust for the shock value for the audience as to where Holocaust has a, a message to be heard, and you know, it's offensive, I guess, to a standpoint if you can't get over being an American, and a lot of it is uh, Vietnam era, but all of these things, all of these feelings that other countries had for us during the Vietnam era have all reoccurred and have been stirred up with uh, our current and ongoing and more than likely forever going involvement with the Middle East. Yeah, and I mean, all those things are definitely, I, I give you all those things, but as we were talking about an exploitative element, earlier this does have an exploitive element but it's so much of exploitive element that it's hard for me to enjoy the film that surrounds that element because and it's not because of violence it's not it's strictly on story and what happens within the film and it's just not something i can like rewatch. and it's not because of the nastiness or any of that those things it's just like this story is kind of boring to me but I've never been a huge fan of cannibal films, uh, Italian cannibal films. I, I've seen most of them and all that, but none of them have ever like personally touched me in a way. I know that sounds stupid, but I mean, Fulci has personally like uh, like emotionally affected me, and the Holocaust somewhat emotionally affects me definitely. But it's not something I ever really just want to go back to. There's something v- very much not enjoyable at the film about the film. It might just be the overall gritty tone of it throughout or it's just not something that i find pleasure in watching i think it's general unpleasant nature is what attracts me to it at most and why i like to rewatch it and keep it sort of familiar in my film library is because of the ex- exposure of how awful humans are and it that is what touches upon me more is I guess more in a negative aspect, remembering just how awful people are because you go into the movie with such hope of who these people are and it's going to be this search and rescue thing. And most uh, Italian cannibal films feature quite a bit of Italian cannibalism and this only has maybe one act of it actually. And you're given this exposition of these people being just awful and and you get the understanding that they've done this before, that they, they've they been like a, the butterfly effect. They've just 
been a tidal wave of terror everywhere they've gone, and that's more frightening than the cannibals and the violence. And to me, that's what kicks the movie into overdrive, that you're given all this violence on screen, and you're shown these awful acts of animals dying and and one graphic display of cannibalism, but toward the end of the movie, a, a great deal of mutilation and death. And what's more horrifying than anything is the actual act of, of these people and what they've done and the stain that's left in your mind of what they've done elsewhere. And at the end, you, I, I feel, get, you know, it, it's very twisting to your emotions because you don't want to watch this graphic display. You don't want to see people uh, horrifically murdered, but you're watching them die and you feel like justice has been served. And that's horrifying for you because, I mean, I think an average, I guess, sorry to say, normal person doesn't want to watch somebody uh, horrifically mutilated and killed and murdered for no reason. And you, you're you almost cheering for the, the cannibals at this point. Like, fuck yeah, kill them because they're so awful. And that turns your own emotions upon yourself, and that's fear. You know, you have so many different things that uh, is beyond provocative that Diodato brought to the table with so many different directions that come at you with Cannibal Holocaust. So, I mean, I do agree it, it is very messy, but I think a lot of that's the point of the found footage idea and their recovery, and it could have been... I mean, I don't know what more I would have wanted them. I mean, even trying to think, like, if they'd have sat down and had with Professor Monroe more sequenced scenes of them watching the movie, if that would have helped. Uh, you know, I for what it is, I think it's, it's to me, the, the best Italian cannibal film, but at the same time, it lacks a lot of what, like, makes an Italian cannibal film, almost like Green Inferno. It's almost a different beast, which I don't care for Eli Roth's Green Inferno at all. We did an episode years ago raging about that. And uh, not raging, but we both didn't fucking like the movie. Let's say it that way. And Cannibal Holocaust is is a similar environment because it's not really so much about the cannibals or the violence that the cannibals create or cause. It's it's about the footprint uh, man leaves. I think a lot of the distaste I have for this film is not on moral grounds or anything like that. I think it's a lot of the distaste I have for the Blair Witch Project and something like Paranormal Activity as well. That to me, like rewatchability is a very real thing. That really, like, if I want to immediately go back and watch this movie, or I can't wait to watch it again, that that actually is very important to me. And none of those films that I've mentioned really make me ever want to go back to them because there's just, it's much more about an effect and an emotional response and about nothing else because there's no real story elements. It's proven with something like Paranormal Activity. There's not really a story there. I mean, the, the amount of time that they've done spinning them off and making sequels, to the, like even Blair Witch Project, just like there's not a whole lot there, guys. The whole thing was kind of a gimmick. And Cannibal Holocaust, I'll I feel with is, Blair Witch. it's much better than all of those, definitely. But again, at the end of the day, there's still just it's mostly just a gimmick for me. I think there's a gimmick that is very sellable to be had with Blair Witch, and it's just been handled poorly. Something like Paranormal Activity has no rewatchability for me, but. I don't know, maybe this says something about me. I, I watch Cannibal Holocaust three or four times a year, and it's never, uh, most of the time when I watch it, I skip over the, uh, the the violent scenes, the animal violent scenes. That's not the reason I watch it. It's really the message behind it, and I think it's just, to me, uh, stark and awakening. And that's something that I have a lot of appreciation for with um, Diodato as, as a filmmaker in general. And I think um, like House on the Edge of the Park really has a representation of that stark awakening and a rude awakening of culture and how awful people are also. See, I find that movie much better than Cannibal Holocaust. And I know a lot of people would disagree with me, but 
I would judge them as a certain equals. amount of rewatchability to me. And Cannibal Holocaust, you just I are in it for the disco. It's importance. I acknowledge everything that it's done. I acknowledge how vicious of a film it can be and how people can maybe enjoy that film. But to me, it's just so much more of a gimmick. And like with House on the Edge of the Park, that that's a story and that's acting and that's there's so much more filmmaking going on to what is essentially a gimmick. Gimmick or not, I enjoy it. House on the Edge of the Park, I would judge as an equal with uh, Cannibal Holocaust. And those are, I think, the two major uh, you know, big things with Diodato's body work. What was the one you watched a couple couple months body ago? Body Count? Body Count with David Hess, right? Terrible. <laughs> it's fucking terrible. I watched the first 15 film. minutes of it. I enjoyed that David did his own voice in the dubbing and then i turned it off after that scene where he's yelling at the tv drinking a beer so not, not even 15 minutes i got like 38 seconds in it, like italians have no affinity and europeans really have no affinity for making slasher films giallo films definitely but giallo films and slasher films i view as being whereas very similar quite different um, because again, like American films, there's always some sort of, it's, there's a certain amount of cheese to them. There's a certain amount of like fun and Italians just don't have the affinity for making slasher films fun. They make them always like a murder mystery. Fulci so could have handled just, it. Like, like Fulci could have did. I mean, I, I like the New York Ripper. I take that as a slasher film. I see. I think it's more of a giallo to me. You have the black glove killer. You have. The police interaction, you have all those things, and that's like quintessential. I mean, there's genre. a. I think it's maybe a, a perfect melding, perhaps, of, of both of the genres because the sleaze o- overbears for me were. Uh, I mean, giallos are incredibly sleazy, but there is a weird level of class to them. And when you throw something like the New York Ripper into it, I mean, that movie's just greasy to bring an old. Yeah, I will back. give you it probably bridges a gap better than a lot of the uh, Italian slasher films. I would say it's uh, like it leans towards a slasher but at the end of the day it is still a giallo it's almost like a weird conversion point it's a proto giallo slasher look at us getting all deep into stuff <laughs> you want to go on to number two yeah it's your your ball oh it's it's my big ball it's my big old blatty ball it's william peter blatty's the ninth configuration which is just a tremendous film full of philosophic concepts terrific acting um you know not above the board like crazy filmmaking but admirable filmmaking to say the least but it's it's so much more about the screenplay and the questions that it asks for its era i would say it was definitely crazy oh yeah um something like this really wasn't uh, and it's it's this is uh, this this was more suitable for a stage and the way it ended up becoming and and like forming together when you watch the movie is so unrealistic but at the same time believable that you're really almost like transported to a seat and even if you're watching this at home you really feel like you're stationary in a seat and you're enchanted to what's going on because everything makes sense but the the format and and the way the characters are introduced and the almost insanity that you have to endure because of the insanity that the story is about just just takes you to i don't know you you just you feel very lonely and you feel very stuck 
wa- with what you're visioning. I mean, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but you you're just kind you're of making sense. But what like you're what you're saying, I 100% agree with until you get to the ending, and I think the ending breaks that spell that you're absolutely. Talking about. Um, because it is a it's a movie that is about hope. It discusses many different themes. A lot of them have to do with atheism. Um, the the relevance of God in a time period, um, people's own personal fucked up issues that they have, and a lot of people haven't seen this movie, and I really don't want to go into too much of an explanation because I don't want to get into a well, lot of let's spoilers. Just, like briefly say here that this movie centers around the astronaut that was at the McNeil's house in The Exorcist when Reagan came downstairs and urinated on the floor and tells him you're going to die up there. He's leaving for the Gemini mission and is struck in with fear partially because of that and obviously some other things that you learn throughout the movie that are going on inside of his head. But considerably in Blatty's mind, this was the official sequel to The Exorcist compared to The Exorcist 2, which, you know, it is what it is. Most people call it an abomination. I have a little bit of liking for it um mostly for james earl jones and the whole pazuzu thing but i when i do my exorcist showings i will show the exorcist the ninth configuration and legion and or the exorcist three whatever you want to call it i find this to be you know the the perfect sequel and what makes it even better is guess what not a fucking horror movie and it has nothing to do with horror it's so much more about man's relevance in life it's almost a love story with life and like where i disagree with the film because it gets into the fact that there is the basic idea here is the fact that there is love in the world should tell you that there is a god because a love will make you do a lot of things selflessly so that proves the existence of god and i don't particularly agree with that but i agree with the hope message that love is something worth dying for it is something worth putting your out yourself out there for it's worth living for as much as it's worth dying for personally i'm sorry i cut you off on a good point there um can you repeat the last thing you said because i (laughs) over talked oh just the fact that like i don't need where this is like placating ideas of religious nature of the existence of a god or a godlike figure that that is the hope, and I don't believe that personally is the hope. The hope is that there is love, and it does equate that with that, but it also has a kind of a, a God message in there as well. But I don't personally agree with the God message. I agree with the part that that there is selflessness in humanity, that there is hope, and that is something so you don't feel alone in the world, not the fact that there is a God there to you know, make you feel not lonely. No, the fact that there are other people that uh, there are other people that you're willing to go to bat for the other willing to like, if you've ever experienced like absolutely 100%, I'm willing to die for this person. You know what I'm talking about. The fact that you are able to feel those sorts of emotions is what gives me hope in this world to where you like, I don't need the, the God complexity thrown on top of it because that to me is, kind of meaningless because human and human interaction is is that hope you have a crutch with something like religion and you i don't mean it as a wrong way but when you throw that in and give it this kind of omnipotent there is a god thing it takes away from what you know the beatles talked about all you need is love 
And that, I think, would be the mo- overall more important message here. And, you know, taking away the fact that Blatty is a Catholic, uh, the overlying message is, to me, there's as much beauty in loss and realizing that as there is with love. And like what you were just saying, have you ever gotten to that point that you are willing to die for somebody? Then you, you know this feeling of true love. Well, have you ever gotten to the point that you were willing to die for somebody and then you uh, you break up with them or you don't talk to them or you they, they're nowhere near in your life, but you still recall when you were willing to die for them? If that part of you still exists and you can still acknowledge it and understand that part that there was a piece of you that, that loved that person so much that you could die for them but not anymore, that's a, that's a piece of your humanity. That's a piece of who you are, and that's something that you may be able to lose and might come back to you like a watch, like a sign from quote-unquote God. So you can take it as this translation as, this beautiful life after death Catholic thing and God exists, or you can kind of see it as regaining pieces of yourself through loved ones and or loss. I mean, you, you date somebody for years and you lose them. That's a piece of yourself gone. You are with a family member for years or a brother or sister, an uncle, any form of loss, a pet, a house, a, your car that you've had since you were 16. It's a part of you and a part of your reality. And when you can Remember that love and look at it in a different light from how you might have felt two or three years ago or angry over something or or whatever the emotion is behind it. And you can recognize that love and that part of you that essentially is like like God's love, like what is this whole transcending thing when you read the Bible of Christ's love and God's love and acceptance and feeling this one thing for compassionate people. If you can get over things and you can remember the love that might not be there that you used to have then you truly have allowed love into yourself. And I think that's like the overwhelming message with, you know, not just Catholicism, but Christianity. Let the love in, let let the sun in, age of Aquarius, all of these things come down to just love, light. Fucking Thelema, one of the most feared, satanic, evil, weird things. Aleister Crowley, do what thou wills the whole of the law, love of the law, love under will. Every man, every woman, a star. Everything comes back to love. Yeah, I don't think you need... Like me personally, I don't need the God to push me in that direction because the love itself is enough. I don't need a being to tell me that I'm right or wrong. So I guess what I'm saying is I agree with a lot of the outcomes of this film. I just don't agree with a lot of the hypothesis they have or that Vladdy has. But that's irrelevant to what the, the, the mastery of what this film is, of just the the acting um, I don't know, like the way Blatty can have a very personal relationship between men to where he can really put that emotional context between like a, a like a friendship or a brother or two brothers that there is this love between them. And the way he like establishes that in Exorcist three, the way he establishes that in um, in this film as well, because like Ed Flanders in both those films is like just the perfect casting choice for um, what he's trying to like, like throw out there into the ether, like of having all this love for someone and knowing you can't do anything about it. I don't know. Well, it's, it's something Friedkin truly lacked with the Exorcist between the um, Father Karras and the detective character. That these two people were supposed to be very, very close friends, and the the film translation of the Exorcist leaves them somewhat distant. 
and in the exorcist 3 the ed flanders character really you know there's a reproach to that and obviously their friendship is you know much stronger after the death of damien it may not look like it under all the bullshit masculinity thing but these two characters have this deep they love each other this deep love and that's what uh, is the big driving point of the ninth configuration is Ed Flanders and Stacy Keach and the love Ed Flanders has for him. But you have some other amazing performances throughout this movie that are 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 just kind of breathtaking. I mean, uh, you you can talk about The Walking Dead all day long and uh, In Cold Blood. Oh but God, Scott Wilson, man. Yeah, this. I mean, In Cold Blood's great. It's really great, but this is, I mean, Scott Wilson is just outstanding. And me, personally, my my two favorites, I like to watch this movie and would love just, uh, they remind, and it's, it's funny because it's brought up through the entire movie, and it obviously is significant in the entire point, but Jason Miller and Joe Spinell's character are putting on this Shakespearean play between dogs, and there's this scene <laughs> where Joe Spinell has a, a dog, and I don't know if it's Guildenstern or Rosencrantz, but he suggests that it could play Guildenstern or Rosencrantz, and Jason Miller turns and goes, it's a, it's a girl, it has to be, you know, a man, and just tells him to, to get out of his sight. And these two characters really are the embodiment of, of Rosenstern and Gildenkrantz, who are very minuscule characters in this play, but in their own right. Um, another writer made a, a play called uh, Rosenkrantz and Gildenstern are Dead, which is about their journey to be the would-be assassins that they don't end up being. And in turn, Jason Miller and Joe Spinell wonderfully play these two things off of each other. And what helps catapult the movie into uh, just the mesmerizing status I really think it is, is all of these people together. Um, so, uh, Tom Atkins without a mustache as Sergeant Krebs, who he's very somber throughout the movie, and he's got two or three scenes that really – uh, like like seep through with the excellence that is um Tom Atkins, Stacy Keach. This uh, um maybe Long Riders is the only other movie that I could bring full reference where he goes through such a a massive range of emotions as a character. He's the one that you're really drawn to if you're not watching Scott Wilson. And uh, to me, it's Ed Flanders. Like that's the big Ed Flanders and um Robert Loja. I forgot he's in the movie. Ah, it's for Robert Loja. Oh, it's for, oh my thing. God! It's <laughs> Robert Loja. I'm not gonna do the whole thing. Um, it, just it, it, equally between the message and the message of hope and the love and the light and the excellency of William Peter Blatty as a writer and director is all of these people meshing together. And what you know, we haven't really gone into what the movie's so much about, but it takes place at a uh, pretty much, for lack of better words, insane asylum for uh, upper echelon military or combat vets. So you've got the idea of all these very, very established military men that have completely gone insane and the portrayal of all of them is is great. Or some of them might be faking it. That's also yeah, definitely. That's why Stacey Keach is there, to see if people are faking it. And then at the very end of the movie, as he usually does, Richard Lynch puts his dick in somebody's mouth and fights karate. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you could put it that way. Um, Dude, he raped so many people in his career on film. I mean, just any time you introduce Richard Lynch into the movie, he's a cult leader, a rapist. Like, he never just got to be like, eh, it's the neighbor, really loud guy from Brooklyn. He had an armpit pussy at one point. Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, But I think, like, to steer it in kind of a, a weird direction away from this, as it, it coming up to, I don't know, things like elections, um... What makes humanity great is the ability to be selfless and to do selfless things. 
for other people. That's what makes humanity strong and not to be selfish and not to be afraid and put up walls and all these different things. It's about being open and metaphorical and physical walls. Yes. But just, it's about being open and being selfless because that like, I don't know how anyone can say they're a believer in God or Christianity and be so selfish. Like it's about being selfless. It's about like, well, here I have a cool idea of yourself to the possibility of someone else having a, a good life besides you. Well, take it into this aspect, especially you parents out there. Everyone always says, I would kill for my kid. I would do anything for my kid. So would you run over a border to give your kid a better life and to start a better tomorrow for them if you're willing to do that? And if so, why the fuck would you judge anyone else that's going to do the same thing? Because that's humanity, and that's accepting love. If you would do this for your child, why all of a sudden is it right? Because it's your child, and it's not somebody else's. You have to look at the entirety of the human race. You have to look at all of us. You have to look at love and changing tomorrow, or what are you doing? You're not helping the situation. Because that is what hope is, and not hope that you yourself are better off in 10 years. It's that everyone is better off in 10 years and we can get rid of as much suffering as we possibly can and not just clam up because it seems hard or it seems like, well, that's just not going to work. Have you ever Let's seen ZPG? It. What? Have you ever seen the movie with Oliver Reed, ZPG? No. It's an early 70s science fiction movie where uh, humanity has gone past the point of no return. You have to wear masks to go out because the world is filled with so much smog, kind of like China is right now. And the human race is so far gone, you can't breed anymore. And if you're caught having a baby, you're instantly executed. So the last few born are all round up, and you can buy little remote control baby dolls to have instead that are programmed with names and emotions and that's how you can live your life now everybody works a certain part of society it's a very cold war communist kind of feeling movie but going into what you know you were just discussing something like that movie even in the early 70s is showing this provocative nature of what people don't want to accept and what most people don't want to accept is unconditional love you can love your kids you can love your neighbors you can love your friends but the black family that lives across the street that's exactly the same as you, you've been conditioned, and I mean this is just an overall statement, to not like. And that's just what racism is. It's conditioning and what you have been taught, and you don't want to break away from these archaic rules maybe because you're afraid or you, you just mostly are afraid. I mean there's no other way to say it outside of that. And something like the Ninth Configuration delves deep into that concept of fear, but it's just not in a race-baiting manner. It is... I don't think most audiences are going to disagree with something about God. So when you end a movie with a high note that God exists, it's, you know, like it's a wonderful life. Everything's okay. Everything's nice. He gets to live. He didn't kill himself on the bridge. So you've got kind of a cop out with that aspect. But if you're willing to redirect your thoughts and take away that layer of whatever, you know, whatever Abrahamic religion you want to put to it, you can allow yourself to at least see you know, like I've been raving about, the idea of love and the the overwhelming aspect that that's what acceptance is. You can't just say you're willing to let your kids survive. It's all the kids. You've, you've, you've got to worry about everybody. You can't kill for your kids if another parent can't kill for their kids, is my 
wrapping statement. Well, that makes sense. Number two, <laughs> the ninth configuration, which is a tremendous movie that everybody needs to check out and you need to track down. I think it's on Tubi right now. But did that make sense? Did I go at least into a? It makes total sense. It's, it's. I mean, it's. That's what the film is about. I, mean, I feel I'm people. raving though, so I don't. I want to take it down a notch. Well, I mean, I mean, we didn't. We're not going to get into too much of the filmic aspects of this movie because they're all very good. They're all very adequate. It doesn't push any boundaries as far as cinematography or any of that thing. So this is, as you were saying before, it's mostly it's an acting piece. These are monologues. This is about high ideas. This isn't just about a film. And boy, thing, aren't there but, some monologues. But the importance of it is the message that it puts out. And the fact that you can use filmmaking to put out a message like that is what's important in filmmaking a lot of the times. It's not always just about visuals. It's not always it's about touching people. That's the whole point of art is to actually be able to touch people. And if you don't want to touch people, if you don't want to like communicate with people, then why are you in this business to begin with? That's kind of the whole point of art is to make a connection with the rest of humanity. And that's what the ninth configuration is about is about connection and connecting with humanity is through art, through all these different things. And that's, what's important with filmmaking is to actually connect. And that will get down to my number one as well, but your number two, Hank, bringing up connection will slide us into my number two, because I will go ahead and begin this with some of the negative aspects of my number two. It is disconnected, and some of that is a fault to the censors, and some of it is definitely fault to the director, who I just made reference to. So we're going to transcend from William Peter Blatty into a William Friedkin movie. Now, I referenced Friedkin's um, lack of being able to establish a, a great brotherly love between characters, and that was something that was pretty necessary with um, the Detective Kinderman and... Uh, father Karras character in the exorcist and when you get into the exorcist three by blatty um the father Di is it father dyer is that yeah um okay i, I there's too many because there's father morning and fa father morning's the gray-haired one sorry father joseph dyer yeah father dyer and kinderman have you know connected and become friends since the death of Karras, and the way that that's shown on screen is tremendous you you really can shed a tear and feel brokenhearted when father dyer finally meets his his death by the gemini killer or you know pazuzu or whatever the fuck it is and it it, it makes you kind of heartbroken friedkin has a problem with Connecting, connecting with humanity. Yeah, and <laughs> but what makes him great is when he can disconnect with humanity with something like Bug, which made that movie absolutely excellent because of the disconnection between reality and who these people are. We're entering something that is, as much as Cannibal Holocaust, probably boycotted um, one of my, I think, three? I don't know. We'll go back over it. Yes, this is one of my three rated X movies from 1980. Written and directed by William Friedkin based on the novel by Gerald Walker, which it differs incredibly greatly. Cruising, and this is where we're going to get into the fisting aspect of things. So something like Cannibal Holocaust was massively banned because of its brutality not just to animals but toward people. Ruggiero Diodato was arrested after the movie was made because most people thought he killed his actors, and he, he did pay them to fuck off, so it would you know be perceived that way, and... That worked. That, again, was a lot of his uh, artistic direction going forward in the big show of things. Cruising was boycotted because of its depiction of the homosexual S&M subculture. 
And one of the things that Friedkin has to say about this movie, which I think is a pretty fair assessment, Al Pacino also has said very similar things, and I'm paraphrasing here. This is a small aspect of the culture, just like The Godfather is a small aspect of the Italian-American subculture. So you can take that as a cop-out if you want to. I don't feel that this is a homophobic movie, and I don't feel that the approach to this film, despite Friedkin's very uh, sturgent Catholicism, is homophobic. And I think it's almost incidental uh, that it happens to take place in the gay culture. And that comes down to the fact that Friedkin did not want to make this movie. The book was written in 1970, and Friedkin made the movie in 1980. Uh, there were multiple other people that, I, I, I think Terrence Malick at one point was up to direct. Many people did not want to do this. And the original book is, is much softer than, than what the, the turnout for the movie ends up being. But Friedkin had worked with a guy beforehand, uh, actually on The Exorcist. He did the ridiculous scene where they're doing the tests on Reagan and they put that fucking tube in her throat and the blood starts squirting out. His name was Paul Bateson. He was involved with the murder of a homosexual critic. And being gay is completely incidental to this. Paul Bateson was also gay. He murdered him. They were frequenters of very hardcore nightclubs. Some of the same nightclubs. I can't remember the name of it, but... um. Clive Barker talks about the place all the time, and it's where a lot of his ideas from Hellraiser came from. The Electric Hellfire Club? Yes, the Electric Hellfire Club. I actually believe they shot some of, of cruising there. This actor, who actually was a doctor, um, committed this murder, and while up for stand going to jail, admitted to several homosexual slayings that had happened in the early 70s in New York City, which had been... Covered in, I think, the New Yorker or maybe the New York Gazette by Arthur Bell. And Friedkin found all these articles coming back to that and then took the script from Cruising and combined all these things. And then having the previous work with Bateson used him and his producer and then went literally to the mafia who ran most of the gay clubs at the time to kind of find more information on these slayings and then molded the story from what the original uh, intellectual property from Gerald Walker was. And that turned into the spiraling, insane story that is cruising, which is about an undercover police officer, uh, a New York City police officer, that he has to go undercover to investigate a string of gay murders that are happening in the hardcore S&M scene. That sounds strategic enough, but the movie becomes very disconnected in a... Nouveau dreamlike state, and most of that isn't really intentional. That it was, I mean, I think 50 times it went up to the censors 50 times and was continuously banned because it, it shows a graphic, graphic nature of the SM subculture down to fisting, hardcore sex acts, hardcore uh, homosexual nudity, and then the violence and connotation thereof between it. But this takes me back to something like Cannibal Ferox and talking about violence for the sake of violence and um, just the point of things being displayed and given to you on screen. And something like Cruising's depiction of absolution and violence is, I think, almost pivotal to the story. Well, I think a lot of people had problems with Cruising more often than anything is the fact, especially in 1980, the gay community was very maligned as being incredibly deviant. And Freakin chose a story and that is depicts a lot of homosexual behavior as deviant. And I know he's like focusing 
in on one aspect of it. And in no way, shape, or form is any of this deviant, especially where we're at today. But the way people viewed things, especially in 1980, was incredibly different. And the homosexual community didn't want this to be like a major motion picture display of what all homosexual behavior is like. And oh, you just think we're all deviants. And that's, I mean, it's a very valid point they were making. At the same time, though, you have to look at it as a story, especially in today's day and age. I don't know if it would be looked at quite the same because how maybe it still is looked at the same in the gay community. But, I mean, this is a aspect of gay culture, especially in the 80s, of the Leatherman phenomena and the, the, the leather clubs and just homosexual male behavior. Not all, but some. The problem with that is you have one character played by the guy from Squirm. Was it Teddy? He's he's the avatar for the for the gay community. He's the one. He, he's the nice gay guy, and I think that's what a lot of the problem with the film is. It seems very pandering. It doesn't seem to like really embrace the community as much as it. I don't I think, think it, it was purposely thumbs it its nose at the gay community, but I can I think it can be viewed as that, and I think that's where a lot of the problems are coming in. I think it was somewhat incidental to incidental though, and I don't think it was uh, you know brought up in a room you know with people sitting down reading scripts that we're going to do this 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 and this to try and provoke or make this seem a certain way, and a lot of it came down to something we've been discussing tonight. I is, think a lot of it is also like like. Freakin's personal biases to what the way he depicted things in this film. Like we're going to have a, a fisting scene because you know that that's what the gays are into. And when you don't well, understand that culture, it can be looked at as being, you know, just being very like pandering to uh, a the straight community, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, you can take it as something like uh, Spike Lee's argument with Quentin Tarantino and his overuse of the N word as to where Spike Lee has a very valid argument. Does a white man have any point to be able to say that word, even in jest, even as a writer? And then you've got, like, Sam Jackson, who defends Quentin Tarantino. Well, he wrote it. He's not actually saying it. But still, at some point, there's got to be an abuse of the word and culture, and it's not like you can't say anything. I'm not going to join in with absolute cancel culture. Say whatever the fuck you want to. There will be repercussions for it. And that's something that most people aren't willing to admit, that... I should be able to say this. You can. No one's taking that right away from you. But when you say something that's absolutely ridiculous, you're going to face punishment for it. And it might not be ridiculous, and I might not be using the greatest terms of, of words here and comparing something like racism to uh, cruising and uh, an anti-homosexual vibe is, is kind of confusing, and I'm not trying to make a political statement out of it. But I really think Friedkin's... I think he kind of wanted to use that as an exploitation. I think he wanted to not exploit the gay subculture or the S&M subculture or the leather subculture of the time period, but he wanted to exploit the scene, the idea, the... I mean, because this movie also equally you know, incorporates, I think, the only time the germs actually were ever used uh, while Darby Crash was alive for a soundtrack. So they were trying to like blend and uh, not they Friedkin was trying to blend and bring forward a lot of different subcultures and a lot of different approaches to these subcultures. Um, 
you know, because like Darby was infamously bisexual and a member of, of the leather community and they're trying to join these things. So I don't think they went at it with a negative approach, but in the long run, it was heavily boycotted and Arthur Bell himself, who Friedkin had gone to to try and get direction and some ideas for this movie, was one of the lead people that got it, you know, was right. It was the Village Voice. I'm sorry. I think I said the New York Gazette or the New York Post. He wrote for the Village Voice. He had, you know, gone to his audience and had asked, you know, you, you guys have got to fight against this because they're portraying us as these deviant serial killing popper sniffing fisting leather daddies and most of us are just normal people and then you've got the whole scene of the popper sniffing fisting leather daddies who are very upset over not having the connotation of being normal people and a lot of them and regulars at the electric hellfire club and other uh, prominent new york gay scenes joined in and helped with the production and became extras and and a lot of the bar and party scenes were recreated from other famous clubs with extras who were now offended over being said that they weren't normal. So there's a massive confliction behind this movie, and then you get to the movie itself. It's all over the place. And editing has a lot to do with it. The censorship has a lot to do with it. But the fact that the story varies so much from the novel causes a, a massive deal of interest because you've got this undercover entity who... Uh, is trying to deal with his actual reality and the new forming reality, and then you're given a very open-ended ending as to what might have been going on the entire time. And there's a lot of loose ends. Again, you've got the wonderful Joe Spinell, who plays a very seedy cop and uh, almost a performance wasted, that you get all this insight on his character, and he's a crooked cop, and Paul Sorvino's going to do something about it, and then it just goes nowhere until the end of the movie. And it, it just flip-flops back and forth that... You go from this very seedy exploitation, almost negative approach to the gay uh, S&M subculture, and then it turns into this weird kind of French Connection cop drama. And this movie was produced by the same guy that did the French Connection and was pretty much supposed to be freaking, you know, continuing that hardcore action pace. And it, it just, it gets very, very wishy-washy. But in the long run, because of how provocative it was with being, you know, argued against, is this an exploitation piece against the homosexual gay S&M leather daddy subculture, or is this a slasher movie? The grease behind it, there's the trail, the snail trail of grease this movie has left, to me, just, just pivots it to the top of, you've got to see cinema, because all your senses are fucked with, you don't know what's wrong or right, you don't know who you are, you don't know how to feel, you don't know what's going on, and again, using a term I hate, it's got that Lynchian dream-like, I just don't know, and that to me, uh, it, it just is one of, this is one of the higher points of freaking throughout the 80s for me, because he's very disconnected as a director, but this to me is, this is one of the best of 1980. I think one of the problems mostly with the film is freaking himself. And I think a lot of that is just his disconnect from humanity, as we were discussing before that. I don't even think he even considered while he was writing this, how it could be viewed by other people. And the fact that you like, none of his characters are very like human in any of his films. I don't think, Al Pacino was probably the, the, the right casting for this role. I mean, he does an admirable job. He's Al Pacino, for fuck's sakes. But you could have gone, I don't know. I think you, you know could who have gone a wanted? direction with that. So what? Friedkin wanted uh, Richard Gere. 
Richard Gere would probably been actually a little bit better. And I think well, there was supposed one... to be a much more androgynous feeling to who the character was. And going back to the Gerald Walker novel that I referenced, um, the the lead character, the cop, uh, somewhat falls in love with his neighbor. And you get in the movie a very clear idea that they're becoming friends and that they're becoming very close. But you don't get a really clear depiction that uh, the Al Pacino character is you know, experiencing, I don't know how to say it, I guess you don't get this idea that he's having sex with men, and obviously that's somewhat sort of the point, that he's been so deeply undercover, how could he believably be going to these clubs, and everyone would know that he's a fake. So you you lose a lot of, like with Altered Fucking States, the character development of who this person is by omitting a lot of this, that the nature of his relationship with the neighbor was very, very relevant to what was going on, because he was a straight man, quote-unquote, when he went into this, and then begins having these different emotions. So it's supposed to be asking you these questions of what is sexuality, what is uh, the, the normal gender roles, and there's a lot of other things that were really neglected when Friedkin took control here, and he, he directed it into... I mean, it starts with this story of solving... He made to live and die in L.A. with it, basically. I mean, he, he starts he, the story he, with who the killer is, and then when it ends, it's really, you know, talking about M. Night Shyamalan twist, as we did at the beginning of the show. This is this is an M. Night Shyamalan twist, and I, I frankly think it's a very—I mean, you want to compare endings. I think City of the Living Dead has a better lackluster ending than Cruising. Cruising's ending is a, a little disappointing, but at the same time, there's an articulation behind it that is— sexy and and fulfilling and dirty so you gotta i don't know you gotta be in a certain mood well i think a lot of that is a lot of what you're discussing is again freaking's problems that he's just like so emotionally disconnected from the story and his characters and from most of his stories and characters that he doesn't see the humanity in these characters and i don't think he it's on purpose i think that's just him as a person and Really, like one of the things that you could have explored is the idea of—I mean, it's explored a little bit—the the idea of the um, the self-hating homosexual, but he handles it in such an un-like forgiving way to where it's almost like, well, these guys are just crazy. That's the problem. Yeah, it's handled like mental stuff. illness because you learn that the the character is a schizophrenic, so they mask it almost with all of yes. this as a mental. Yes, as opposed problem. to handling it in a humane way, it's just kind of handled in a very matter of fact way, and I think that's a freaking problem. And I like William Freakin as a director. I think he's fallen off plenty of times over the years. Uh, this is probably not one of my favorites. I don't know if it'll crack my top ten or not. Um, I think it's a problematic film in a lot of ways, but I also think it's a well-made film in a lot of ways. I think that blue hue he uses in all the clubs is really what sets it apart um, from like a lot of other films, especially a lot of his other films even, that he did take a deft eye to it. I just think him as an emotional being is lacking to tell the story with the kind of compassion that it really needs. Because it just like Freakin's not a compassionate person. He's just not. He's kind of a like a fucking. I don't know. He's he's kind of a prick overall. One of the issues I'll call out with this movie is no one really gets just desserts. Nothing is solved at the end of the movie, and even some of the vile characters, like the Joe Spinell uh, patrolman D. Simone character, you get an understanding that something might happen to him because Paul Sorvino figures out who he is at the beginning of the movie. But they go nowhere, and for the most part, all the characters are 
ignorantly displayed. I mean, the, the, the lead character, Steve Burns, by Al Pacino. So he's been the killer the whole time? Or did he become the killer? Uh, it doesn't fucking matter. And it's I, just the display. I, well, I don't even think that we're trying to imply that because he did use different actors to play the killer. And it was all the victims who played the killer at different times. I think he's so become he... the killer. You know, like he took over or not so much become the killer. The killer is me. That's a weird Allison Shane reference. But he let all this come over him because he meets with Paul Servino a few times and tells him, I don't know what's happening to me. So he has, you know, become something he didn't know who he was, which brings up that question of, well, ooh. My friend wasn't gay, but he became gay. Does anyone really become gay? Is it something that has been processed inside of you that you're refusing to believe? Well, I'm not gay. I can't watch gay porn because I'll become gay. That's You don't catch it. It's not how this happens. It's not the coronavirus. And the movie makes it seem like Al Pacino hung out in some gay bars and is now a leather daddy. And that's not entirely how sexuality works. No, I mean, it's it's... Sexuality is not a bimodal at all, and I don't even want to get into gender theory and all that right now. But just in general, I think, the, like I was saying, well, I think before, that's I problems. think really what you just said there is that's probably how how this movie's direction went. Is, is that's the problem? Yeah, William Friedkin looked at. at the script and went, "I don't want to deal with gender theory. Fuck this." And that's some of the issues with the final product. Yeah, because Friedkin is just he is he's very much assured of him. He's very cocksure of himself he's more catholic than blatty if that says anything and it, you know i don't know if he believes in god uh, the last <laughs> very catholic the last interview i read with him is he has a somber love with god and identifies as a stringent catholic which can be somewhat frightening because catholics are like the uh, altarian left and right they sometimes meet in the middle and that's even scarier so you know the more hardcore things get the left and right all become the exact same thing and that really is kind of what happens with cruising is probably with the best intentions he set out to make this movie but it is certainly understandable why it is as offensive as it does but with something like cannibal holocaust on the list with comparability to why movies are incredibly offensive and why people have outrage with them, that makes you not sometimes look at the art. And if you can, and I'm not saying this like, again, to reference Woody Allen, it's not like looking at somebody that is a bad man. And I'm not saying Woody Allen is. I'm at no point to judge anyone that lives or has lived, but you know, you know the story, everyone does. You can separate the art with them. Why can't you with something like this? Because this didn't necessarily rape anybody. And I'm not saying Woody Allen did or making accusations, but, you know, there are so many different levels of things, and people will disallow themselves to not watch art or understand art because of, of literally uh, heresy. And it's it's somewhat sad to me. And, and Cannibal Holocaust and Cruising are two movies that are definitely labeled not watched and not accepted because of other shit people say so before you read all those interviews and articles and all that hate check it out for yourself and make your own formidable opinion on what this is and if you don't think it's art then cry it from the you know go to the top of the town and scream it and tell everyone become that. a critic yeah do um, what you got i do. will give Blatty this though just of his like visionist director, almost no one is better at shooting a city landscape as Freakin is with the French connection with this film, with to live and not uh, live and die in L.A. I was going to say completely different look to those two films. To live and die in L.A. 
is really I, I mean that that is such a gorgeous movie on its own but this has like an early Scorsese feel like something like Mean Streets where you actually get our taxi driver is probably more of an apt um uh, reference it, it follows along taxi driver very well but like yeah, Freakin really is a premier director of cityscapes like I'd say more so than a lot of people him and Scorsese and this was the era of of New York City that we talk about with with such esteem and such love this was the gritty greasy dirty uh, get your throat slit on the street era, and that's really what is caught in in this motion picture. And two, uh, I guess we'll we'll call this one out just for everyone interested. You almost get to see James Ramar's balls. Oh, I know you're excited about that. Not a bad performance. One of the disappointing things is you don't really get to see more of him and his character uh, left you and his with balls. Yeah, his balls, butthole, all of it. I mean, he was in great shape, and he's supposed to be a dancer. Show me your balls, James Ramar. Show me your balls. So, Show me your beans, James Ramar. Spill your beans. You about ready to go to our number ones of 1980. Do you hear that? What is that? Uh, oh, no. It appears ninjas, for some reason, have come out of the ductwork. Well, why would ninjas be interrupting this extremely long episode that should probably be two parts? The ninjas are attacking! However, will we finish this episode? Oh my god, it really might have to be two parts! Nash knows karate! Oh my god, he's doing karate! It's like some form of mighty. Hold on, Nash, I'm coming! Use Cobra style! Do a roundhouse kick! Do a roundhouse kick! Get some, motherfuckers! Yeah! You want some?